Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today at First Christian Church. I'm very glad that we get to spend some time looking at Scripture together. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and uh, for your guest with us, we're very glad you're here. Would like to say welcome to everybody here in the West Auditorium, to everybody in the East, and to everyone at Lovington as well. Uh, we're very glad that we're worshiping together today and declaring the goodness of God Almighty. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's right at the very front of the book, so it should be fairly easy to do that. And while you're looking for Genesis 3, uh, just a, a brief note, and that is that uh, we did something on your behalf this week, just so you're aware, uh, in response to a crisis. I mean, you are aware, I'm sure, of the fires that have just devastated portions of Northern California. We learned uh, that uh, about 10 days ago that one of our sister churches, Hope Christian Church in Paradise, was literally flattened by the fire, as was the pastor's house. And so, um, on your behalf, uh, through some reserve funds we have, we sent $2,500 to that church and said to the pastor, you use it as you see fit uh, to take care of the people of your congregation. He emailed me yesterday. He finally had email after um, 10 days or so without it, or two weeks, and said that, um, that they are aware that this changes the nature of their congregation dramatically for many years to come. They're meeting for the first time today in a borrowed church just down the road. And uh, they are aware that this will mean that many of their people will probably move away. And he's encouraging his people to find God's best plan for them and don't be tied to um, their particular congregation in the days ahead. So uh, thank you for the way in which you've given in the past so that we had those funds on hand and we sent them on your behalf, $2,500. So thanks for your generosity. All right, so as we look at Scripture today, I want to start by telling you about a fellow by the name of John, of some intellect, a number of generations ago. He had a very interesting job. He worked for the British government. His job as a member of uh, the civil service was to take any documents that Parliament produced or any documents that came out of the palace, it was his job to translate them into Latin. He was both an English and a Latin expert. And he would translate documents from English to Latin, and then they'd be sent abroad where there would be Latin experts who would then translate that Latin into French or Italian or German, Russian, and so forth. And um, so consequently, because he could shape the words that people were going to read overseas, you could say he was um, a man of some influence, extremely prolific. He, he was a bit of an agitator in, in, in uh, Parliament. He was um, in the midst of if you will, this job bringing him in contact with all the right people, he became known as a Republican, not a Republican like we would have Republican versus Democrat in our nation, but in his day, being a Republican meant that you believed the people held the power and that the monarchy shouldn't be sovereign. And so that was his position in life, and he was making great strides in that as a Christian until at the age of 44, he lost his sight. Now, if it's your job to read something and translate it to another language, you've got a problem if you go blind. He could no longer read or write, at least with paper. And this devout Christian was intensely interested in matters of the Bible. And so in his head, as he was thinking about, uh, okay, how, how would I ever describe the story of Scripture? And, and uh, in blindness, he had this Maybe I could explain the story of Scripture in a big epic tale. And so John Milton wrote Paradise Lost as a blind man. Uh, if you started English Lit in college, you probably had to read Paradise Lost. 10,000 verses right out of his head detailing the meta story of Scripture. 
It's considered, Paradise Lost is considered one of the most important pieces, or if you will, most important works in English literature. But did you note that I said he wrote it after he came blind? Well, how did he get it down on paper? Well, he wrote it entirely through the, with the help and through dictation, through dictating to his friends and to a group of people known as the amanuenses. The amanuenses, there's a word you've not heard in a long time, right? So you're going, I've never heard that word. Well, I know, fair enough. Amanuenses. What's an, what's an amanuenses? Well, an amanuenses is a group of amanuenses. Are you you're better off now? Amanuenses is the plural of the term amanuensis. An amanuensis, it's a Latin term for someone who writes down what is being dictated by them, by someone else. It means this. It's a scribe or someone within just a hand's reach who can write down what you say. Somehow or other, John Milton dictated one of the most important documents in the English language. But what's interesting to me is not the fellow who actually wrote it down. Amazing. He had a pretty mature view of his blindness. He realized that, um, man, this is not something that can be fixed. This is in the, you know, in the 1600s. And here he is, he'd been at the center of English political life all sorts of contacts throughout Europe. He's a man who can influence the influential, if you will. But after his blindness, he wondered, how would God use me? I mean, I'm blind. Basically, I'm living in darkness. How could he serve God then? Before he wrote Paradise Lost, he dictated another poem called Blindness, in which he advocated surrender to God's will, that as a blind man, I've got to figure out how I can serve God. He said, I'm he abandoned victimhood. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to accept this crushing disability, was the language he used, as this is part of God's larger design, a design that's larger than any one human can comprehend. And in that poem, while con- that poem, Blindness, while contemplating his dark world and how he could effectively serve God as a blind man, having all his resources and ability to make money taken away from him, he wrote this. They also serve who only wait and stand. In other words, I'm going to serve God even if I'm just waiting and standing. This is how I'm going to wait and I'm going to... I'm going to tell you guys, I'm not so good at that. When I want to serve God, I want to do something. I want to get active. And when it's dark around me, if you will, and I need some... And I'm desperate for light. I'm not so good at standing and waiting. I like to say, I'm going to serve God and I'm going to get involved in this project and, and I'm going to see God work through me this way. And yet, what if it's dark and you can't do that? I'm not so good at that. Are you similar to that? I mean, if so, can we figure out something together today about this business of serving God while you're waiting? You, you, you're, you're stuck in between this job or that job or this decision and that decision. And it feels dark and you're going, how am I going to figure this out? Can you stand and wait and serve God? When not all is well. It's, it's, it's easy to serve God when all is well, but what if what is not all is well? How are you going to serve then? Let's start at the beginning of time to see if we can figure this out. Because the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3 does indeed give us some clues to how to figure out how to serve in the midst of darkness, if you will. You may know the story. The beginning of humanity. Adam and Eve are created by God. They're, they're created. They're not born. Bible doesn't say they, had a, they didn't have a mother. God actually shaped them 
And consequently, they were the only two humans to ever have no belly button. Some of you never even thought to that before, right? I mean, you have a belly button, I have a belly button because we were born. But if you're not born, you don't need a belly button. So they didn't have a belly button. They lived in this idyllic place. It was called the Garden of Eden. They had responsibilities to care for their home and their space. And God says, you've you, you, you got to do, take care of everything. And, and they had a wonderful relationship with one another. And they had this really cool relationship with God. The scripture says that God would come down in the, in the evening and would walk with them and teach them all about the cosmos and about how to do life. And he said, you're free to choose to do and make, make decisions about all this. Except there's one thing. There's one thing I would ask you not to do. See that tree over there? That tree that uh, looks very enticing, but uh, it's got some fruit on it, and I'm asking you not to eat from that. And that was it. That was the extent of their cautions, if you will. But then one day, the serpent showed up, and Satan, the serpent, suggested, well, I know what God said about that tree over there. I know. Surely, surely, do you really think God meant it? Surely God, was, God would want to curtail your, your activities. Would, do you re, wouldn't you really like to taste that over there? Sure, surely you would, and sure enough, they did. Now, I, I, I imagine you've got some questions. You mean the snake could talk? Well, why not? This is before sin entered the world. And we're going to see in a few moments how Satan eventually morphs into this strange-looking creature when we get to the end of the Bible. We're going to look in Revelation 12 in a moment or two, but... They eat, and God's not very happy, if you will. Why? Because they disobeyed? Yeah, that's part of it. But now, by their disobedience, the biggest problem is that sin, disobedience, and the result of disobedience is now entered and become part of the story of the cosmos and the stories of human life. The idyllic setting is ruined and cursed. Chaos is now part of their story. And when you have those moments when things don't go well, and when chaos seems to enter your life, it comes by virtue of the snake's temptations and the decision that Adam and Eve made many, many generations ago. Now, I've got some good news for you. It sounds really bleak so far, but if you look in Genesis chapter 3, God immediately responds in kindness and in grace with no action on the part of Adam and Eve. God responds in verse, 15, verse 13. Pardon me. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. What, what have you done? I can see that you've eaten something. You were not supposed to eat from that. What have you done? And the woman doesn't want to acknowledge anything other than say, well, this, the devil made me do it, so to speak. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Now, we don't know if the snake, the serpent, had legs before this, but after this, there's no legs. All right? I'll put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman. So there's always going to be a struggle now between humans and evil. And I'll put enmity or hostility between your offspring and hers. What does that mean? He, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I got to tell you, friends, uh, if I was to ask you in relationship to this passage of scripture. If I was to say, what's the most important verse in the Bible? 
Some of us would legitimately go, well, it's the verse they hold up in the, in the end zone of football games. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You've, heard, you've seen, perhaps you've heard this. Put it on the back, bumper stickers on the back of cars. You can buy it, you can get it on mugs and everything. You go, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Friend, if you would choose to believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. That scriptures say it straight up. And we'd say, that's the most important verse. And I would agree, except if it wasn't for Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, John 3, 16 would never have taken place. See, John 3, 16 tells us what, Jesus, what God did in Jesus Christ. But in Genesis 3, 15, generations, thousands of years before, we learned that God had a plan. God had a plan from the very beginning when sin came into the world. With the, where he says that Jesus, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What's that mean? Satan's gonna damage Jesus, he's gonna die on the cross, but Jesus is gonna defeat Satan. This is God's response at the very beginning of time, God's response to the crisis that humanity initiated. Satan, the day may come when you think you will kill Jesus, and that may happen. Jesus will die on the cross. But that will be nothing compared to the way in which the resurrected Jesus will defeat you. See, if you follow the story of Scripture from here in Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the very end and you get to Revelation 12, you discover that the serpent grows and morphs and has more influence and greater evil and greater evil, if you will, to where you get this serpent now becomes a great dragon. It's a huge, epic tale. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And if you got the story from the beginning of time of Genesis to Revelation, by the, here at the beginning, there's the deception of Eve, Adam and Eve. At the end of time, you've got this big serpent. In the middle, in the middle, you've got Jesus dying on the cross. And then there's the resurrection. That's all taken place already. Genesis, evil introduced, people waiting. Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus resurrecting, but there's something that's going to happen yet to come. In Revelation 12, we read this, that war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he wasn't strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, that means accuser, the word Satan means accuser, Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. This hasn't happened yet. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. That's in the future. That's yet to come. See, the story of Genesis is in the past. And the people of Genesis, even, even Eve hears, you're going to have an offspring that's going to crush this, this serpent's head. She's waiting. The people of the Old Testament were waiting. You've got... They were waiting for, for the coming Messiah, the one who would save them from this mess. 700 years before Jesus was born, the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah told of what would happen upon Jesus' arrival, that the darkness of sin's curse would be overcome by the light of Jesus Christ. We read that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Can, can I help you to think of it this way as a timeline, if you will? A timeline with creation on one end and Satan's demise at the other. In the middle, there's sin. Sin gets introduced fairly quickly in the timeline. And then after that, for a waiting time, for a waiting period, 
you have the arrival of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, his death, and then you have Satan being thrown over. You've got this waiting for the light, and I've got really good news for you, friends. Jesus Christ is the divine personification of that light. He is the divine personification of Satan's defeat, and you have Genesis people waiting, you have the Old Testament people waiting. Jesus comes, his light shines into the world, and with that, the cross and the resurrection take place, and then you're waiting still for the next move. In the timeline, in history's timeline, can I remind you where you stand? You stand on the side of history after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is why, why G, that God's prediction, if you will, or prophecy of, Satan, of Jesus crushing Satan's head is so important. The control that sin has over you, may I remind you it's already been defeated by two outstretched arms on a cross. That's what Christians believe. And now we say, okay, the light of Jesus Christ has come and the light defeated sin on the cross. The light defeated death through his resurrection. But now we wait for the coming light of Satan's permanent demise. And the reality is evil, Satan still has moments where what the chaos that he introduced to this world still impacts us. There are moments, there are days, there are weeks and months and sometimes decades where, where we live about what, what our family, I guess, with somewhat affectionately calls the struggle bus. You know, when a kid's having a really bad day, it's like the whole day, my mother used to say, you in the wars today? It's one, one problem after another. Or we would say to the kids, are you in a, on a struggle bus today? It's like, you've bought the, you've, you live on a struggle bus from time to time. You know what it's like? You get on the bus for the, for the day, for the week, for the month, and all the drapes on the bus get pulled down. You can't even see the drive, and you don't know where we're going. And you, you're living in that place where there's darkness. When blindness strives to curtail our service to God, what do we do? We join with the psalmist declaring, the Lord is my light and my salvation. If he's my light and my salvation, even as I'm on board the struggle bus, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. With him being the stronghold of who I am, of whom shall I fear? So friends, beloved, remember this. We stand on the post-resurrection side of history. And evil may prefer darkness, but we are the children of light. We are the city set upon a hill. We walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And we have fellowship with one another. And scripture tells us that God's son, the blood of Jesus God's son, purifies us from all sin. That's where we stand. We are forgiven. Our sins are, are done with. But who are we kidding? There are some moments when it doesn't feel that way, aren't there? There are moments when life seems hard and dark. And we wonder, man, why is everything crashing in on me? It's like a series of dominoes falling on me. You know what I mean, right? One bad move. Somebody steers the steering wheel just a little too close to the guardrail. And really awful things happen. 
You've had this happen in your life from time to time, right? One thing after another, row upon row of what you set up in life. Yeah. Someone somewhere along the line made a bad choice, a bad move, and you were going along straight, and then somebody just turned the wheel a little bit. And now, do you want to see it again? You want to, can you guys re-rack that for us? Okay, there you go, okay. So, so watch this, this driver just, just touches a little pole right there. Now may I remind you that forklift drivers are inside a cage. And it just goes on and on and on, right? You think, okay, when that last row is done, no, there's another row that has to come down. Oh, now we're done. No, we're not done. I wonder about the driver. I bet it got a little dark, don't you think? I bet there was a desperate need for light. And how long did that driver have to wait for help? Crouched like this. It's kind of like who we are from time to time, right? Here you are on the post-resurrection side of history. But there are days when sin's chaos still enters your existence. And you're waiting. As you say, I'm forgiven, all is well. But you're waiting. You're waiting for um, Satan's darkness to be overcome by Jesus' light at the end of time. Where are you? You're living in between, the, you're living in the middle, if you will, between your salvation. That's already been given to you. You're living in between your salvation and history's culmination. You're waiting. You're waiting for the light that's going to crush Satan's head. It's going to crush evil. I'm reminded of John Milton in these sorts of moments. You know, the guy who wrote one of the most important epics of English literature after losing his sight. Paradise Lost came from his head, written there, but it was actually put down on paper by a scribe. Somebody called, uh, do you remember the word? Okay, amanuensis. That's the Latin term for someone who is within a hand's reach of the storyteller, just this close. One of the most brilliant minds in the English language was willing to wait. And think of, the, think of it this way. As an author, he was willing to do the writing and let someone else manage the penmanship. You've got this issue at the house, you've got this, that issue at work, you've got the struggle with your spouse, whatever. And there are days when it feels like darkness. However, the father of lights is writing a tale of epic proportions that involves you. We, as followers of Christ, we come to the place where we say, God, you're in charge. You're the author of the story. You write the story. You develop God out of your heart for me, out of your mind, the mind of God. And it's my job, God, to inscribe it on my heart. It's my job to tell the story and to write the story that you get, that you have, is my life in the lives of people around me and to the world at large. God, 
I'm not going to be the author. I'm going to be the amanuensis. I'm going to be the one who writes down what you're doing in me through the way in which I live as I wait for the light of Jesus' complete defeat of the evil one. God is writing your story, and you have, you have a role in the story. What's your role? Your role is to stand within one hand's reach, within easy reach of the author, transcribing what God is working out in your life. As a matter of fact, can I suggest that God is already more than just, it's not just one hand's reach, but it's two arms outstretched. That's how close God is to you. Jesus Christ coming and dying for you and for me. And then we write, we, I shouldn't say God writes the story and then we transcribe it for ourselves to see and for others to see. Even as we wait for the light of the end of time and the demise of evil, the evil one called Satan. Let's pray together. Lord, I have friends here today in three auditoriums, people listening and watching online, and I suspect there are many like me, God, where there are some days when life is really good, but then there are some days when it's a little far more difficult, and you, we wonder uh, in the dark of those moments, how, how are you going to work this out? Lord, help us to today to um, make a decision to let you be in charge. Lord, I want you to write my story. I want you to write the story of each individual here today. I want you to write a story that is of epic proportions. Lord, I want you to write a story that uh, makes Paradise Lost pale in comparison. Write a story and then God will be uh, the amanuenses who put it down, not on paper, but in the lives of the people around us, in the lives of maybe some kids across the street at Parsons School, in the lives of the people in our neighborhood. We'll write your story, God, about us in the lives of people at the house, at work, at school, wherever, where it is, God. We're, we're, we're going to strive to, even in the moments when it feels dark, we're going to strive to wait upon you and to wait for the light. In this Advent season, Lord, where we realize that Advent is not about the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, but rather a second coming of Jesus to defeat evil. Lord, keep us within one hand's reach. Keep us within two outstretched arm's reach of your work within us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'm inviting everybody in all three rooms to stand at this time, please, if you will. And we're going to continue to be a congregation of worship, and as we do so, if you're here today and you'd say, I need to pray about one of these matters, it's really dark around me about this matter, or there's very little light, and I need to know how we're going to deal with evil on this situation, or whatever the case. There'll be some leaders in all three rooms who'll be glad to pray with you. Maybe you're here today and say, hey, something really cool, the light has dawned on something really cool, and I just want God's continued blessing upon it. You'd like to pray about that. If you're here today and you say, man, I'm... I'm on the wrong side of the history of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I don't know that my sins are dealt with yet. We'd love to pray with you as well. Allow you to begin a walk with Christ in which now God writes the story as you live it out. 
You come at this time as we experience God's grace and work in our lives together.